we are going to finish up the last of the Olivet Discourse parables tonight, and we're going to look at the parable of the sheep and the goats. And some might say, I don't think this is a parable, but I personally think it is a parable, and if you don't understand that it's a parable, you're going to get really messed up on this passage of Scripture. So let me read the first few verses, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. And it says in verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory... And all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. But then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And we'll stop reading right there, but this parable right here is one that causes a lot of doctrinal issues for people when they try to preach on it. And the truth is, it's hard to find any two preachers that will agree on how to interpret this parable right here. I've read books on it. I've read a lot of different theories on it. And I'm telling you, I just feel like they all fall fall short and they're inconsistent and people are reading their own doctrine into these things. So a few things before we go into this to kind of help you make sure you're getting it right. Because you're like, Pastor Tommy, are you so arrogant as to think you got it right and everybody else has got it wrong? Listen, it's not even about arrogance or I think I'm right and everybody else is wrong. It's just about the fact that, you know, when you have an agenda, it's hard to get things right. And I know nobody wants to admit to having an agenda, but I do believe I'm looking at this honestly and I believe my other doctrine's right, which is the key to making sure you interpret these things right. And so uh, I do think I'm right and everybody else is wrong. But I, I, I hope you don't think I'm arrogant because of it. And at the end of the day, remember, we do not form our doctrine around parables. Okay? They can kind of be icing on the cake. But one of the things I'm seeing is a lot of people who are preaching a lot of false doctrine are getting their clear doctrinal positions, as they would call it, from parables. You can't do that. And people are even getting workspace salvation from this parable. And folks, if you've got to go to a parable to get your workspace salvation, I am convinced that you're interpreting that parable wrong. And so the thing is, you know, when you... One of the ways you can know when you've got it right is when... It doesn't contradict anything else in the Bible when it doesn't clash with other doctrines. And so I believe what I'm going to present to you tonight is most likely accurate because I don't believe it conflicts with any other clear doctrine. doesn't mean we can't have a detail wrong here or there, but that's what we got to make sure we do when we're trying to figure out parables is as long as we aren't basing doctrine off of them and as long as uh, you know, what we're teaching doesn't conflict with something else, then we, you know, we could say we're probably pretty safe when it comes to that. So uh, let's, let's go ahead and go through this and see exactly what it means. So first thing I want to point out, in verse 31, the very first verse, it says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And without a doubt, this is referring to the rapture. Now, this is one of the reasons that pretty much any pre-tribber who would listen to this sermon is going to disagree with what I'm teaching tonight because they would say there is no way that's talking about the rapture. This is something, this is an event that happens after the seven years where Jesus is going to divide the nations. And folks, I've always kind of had the position 
that that's, this is talking about a specific event where there is going to be a dividing of the nations that's going to happen when Christ comes and He actually steps foot on this earth. But upon further study on this, I do not believe in a literal event where Jesus Christ is sitting in Jerusalem and he starts dividing the nations. Okay? I, 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 and I, I'm probably not going to have time to get into a lot of things that go along with that. But I will, I will say, my trip to Israel really helped me with some of these things. There were some specific places I really wanted to go to just really visualize some of these things. And I, I don't know if I'll have time to get into some of that tonight, but when I, I'm telling you, I actually... I uh, had the privilege of going and walking through a specific area. I've always wanted to walk through where I believe a biblical event is going to take place just to really kind of help me put some things in perspective. And as I just walk through there, I'm looking around. I'm like, I don't think this is what I thought it was going to be. And I might teach more on that in the near future if I don't have time to get into it tonight. But first off, if you're a post-tribber, then without a doubt, this event right here, when he comes in his glory with all the holy angels, is for sure the rapture. Because remember, this is the other thing too, pre-tribbers will never do when interpreting the Olivet Discourse is they will ignore Matthew 24 before they get to Matthew 25. And they will also ignore Matthew 23 before they get to Matthew 24. These things all go together. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem, judgment on Jerusalem, judgment on Jerusalem. Chapter 24, what's he talking about? Judgment on Jerusalem. We're continuing a theme. He's calling out Israel for their rejection of the Messiah. He's warning them what's going to come if they do not repent. And so if, if we ignore all those things, if we ignore all the context, then we can go to these parables and you can isolate it and you can make it about whatever you want. But I believe Jesus is still on subject right here. And notice in Matthew 24, verse 29, he says immediately after the tribulation of those days, Shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from four winds from the one end of heaven to the other. Now, folks, when you read that and then you look at verse 31... When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, in Matthew 24, it says He's coming in power and great glory. It says He's going to send His angels. Here in verse 31, it says, and all the holy angels with Him. And then He shall sit upon the throne of His glory. So there is no way that you can separate the event that's being spoken of here in Matthew 25, 31 from the event in Matthew 24 unless you're trying to make these passages fit one of your charts that you stole from Larkin and maybe rearranged as a post-tribber, you, you can't really do that. It's without a doubt the same event. We need to remember that when the disciples uh, brought, and Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives and they asked them all those questions, they didn't just ask Jesus about His return, but they asked Him about the destruction of Jerusalem. They asked about the end of the world or the end of the age. And so not everything in this passage is about events in the first century. Okay? That's where preterists mess up. They make everything about the first century. Futurists also mess up because they make everything about the future. No, both are involved in there. We can't forget that. And whenever we get to verse you know, 29, where Jesus is coming in the clouds of power and great glory in Matthew 24, that hasn't happened yet. When we get to Matthew 25, 31, he's specifically saying, he's referring now, the other two parables 
were more about the events of the first century. But this parable, he's like, now we're talking about the part when I come in my glory. So this parable, I don't believe has anything to do with first century. I believe it's all about the future. So the thing is, while everything Jesus talked about was for the future of the people he was talking to, not everything in the Olivet Discourse is about our future. But this parable, I do believe exclusively is about our future. So notice in verse 32, it says, And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Now, here's one of the reasons I believe this is a parable. Because I don't believe Jesus is going to literally separate sheep and goats. What's he doing then? Well, he's obviously, you got sheep and goats. It's comparative, right? Now, who would you all say the sheep are? Us as what? Saved people, right? You all think saved people are the sheep? And so who would the goats be? Lost people? Yeah, and, and don't worry, you're right. Okay, it's okay, you're right. But I'm going to confuse you here in a minute because you know what? If, you know, some, if pre-tribbers and a lot of other people are going to be consistent, you say, well, not necessarily. And, and, and if you think this is talking about saved and lost, then it could potentially create some problems for you. Again, if you're wrong on certain doctrine, if you're wrong on eschatology, uh, it, it's, it's going to create some conflicts. If you're a no-works-for-salvation person, it could create some conflicts for you if you're not interpreting things accurately. But let's go through, because I don't believe Matthew chapter 25 hurts our doctrine at all. But notice, just as God brought judgment on Jerusalem for what they had done with what God had given them, one day, God is going to judge the world in the same way. That's why we believe there's dual fulfillments of what we see in Matthew 24. While he's talking mostly about events of the first century, you can't help but see some really similar things to what we see in Revelation that's going to come upon the whole earth. But that's because of the fact, just as God judged Jerusalem, God is going to bring the same judgment on the whole world. God's just like God judged Jerusalem for what they did with the gospel and they got major judgment because they did bad with it. God is going to do the same thing on the rest of this world. One of these days, judgment is coming on the whole world and how that judgment goes. It depends on what these nations did with what was given to them. So the thing is, you know, what we have to say what the Bible clearly teaches is when Christ returns, it was going to be with deliverance for his people in judgment on the world. Now, this is where you have to have a proper mindset when it comes to dispensationalism. Whenever you're, in, whenever you're studying the Bible, whenever you're studying a passage, it's important that you keep in mind what had been revealed to them at that time. Okay? So I, what I need everyone to do right now, I need everyone to delete the book of Revelation from your mind. Okay, can you do that? Because this is, this is what y'all are doing. This is why people get confused. They're trying to look at this passage and trying to reconcile it with the events that they see in the book of Revelation. And it ends up causing confusion. But understand, when Jesus said these things, the book of Revelation had not been given yet. And so what we're seeing here is a, a very nonspecific or a... Uh, a very general overview of what's going to happen at Christ's return. In the book of Revelation, it goes into greater detail. And so what they understood 
during this time is that one day there was going to be a resurrection of the just and unjust. They did not know yet that those things are going to be a thousand years apart. They didn't know that yet, but they did know about a resurrection of the just and unjust. They also knew about a time of deliverance that was going to come for God's people. They also knew about a time of judgment that was going to come for the, for the enemies of God. What they did not know about, they didn't know about the seven seals. They didn't know about the seven trumpets. They didn't know about the seven vials. They didn't know about any of those things. But they knew that judgment was going to come. So whenever the Bible is speaking of the separating of the sheep and the goats, it's not giving us a single 24-hour period, a single detailed event. He's giving basically just a brief general overview of what's going to be done at Christ's return. And at Christ's return, you know what he's going to do? He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. I believe the separating of the sheep and the goats happens at the rapture. That's when he, put, he pulls the sheep out. And then you know what he does with the goats? He judges them. You say, well, that's kind of specific. Or they're not very specific. And just because so little detail is given, you might think, well, it's just like one day, one single event. But no, the book of Revelation gives us another dispensation. It gives us a, a more detailed look. And we understand now that when Christ pulls us out he's, and he pours his wrath out on the earth, it's not something that's going to happen in one local area. It's not something that's going to happen in a 24-hour period. Some of those judgments last for months that we see. So understand Jesus, he's not worried about clarifying what he's talking about and reconciling it with the events of Revelation. They don't know about any of that yet. He's, he's speaking very broad and very general but unfortunately a lot of theologians have taken this and they've turned it into like a 24-hour event that happens at the end you know like after armageddon and i just don't believe that and if you think that that's what it is then you know what you got to believe in a rapture that happens at armageddon because of the fact that with this is without a doubt referring to the same event that we see in matthew 24 that we would call the rapture so Keep all, the, keep all those things in mind. And let me just show you another example. Turn over to Revelation 14. Revelation 14 speaks in the exact same way. Revelation 14 is basically a vision that's giving a very general description of what's going to happen at Christ's return. And notice what it says in verse 14. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud... And upon the cloud, one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Now, how many think when Jesus comes back, he's going to have a sharp sickle in his hand? Do we see that in Revelation chapter 19? Do we see that in Matthew 24? Him having a sharp sickle in his hand? We see out of his mouth going a sharp two-edged sword. So, he, he, well, I think he's going to have a sword and a sickle. You know, I don't even think he's going to have a sickle. Oh, you're denying Revelation 14. No, I'm not. I believe it's figurative. I believe it's symbolic. And there's a lot of things that are symbolic in Revelation. And it says, and, I, and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. I believe this is the rapture. I believe this is the gathering of the elect. That takes place. I believe you could say it's the gathering of the wheat. And then and we see too the parable of the wheat and the tares. 
The wheat's gathered up, it's saved, while the tares are cast into the fire. And that's how it was often spoken of during that time about the coming of Christ. It was going to be a time of gathering for God's people and a time of destruction for the enemies of God. And so verse 17 says, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Okay, now let me ask you. How many of you believe this is literal? Where we're literally, the wicked are literally cast into a wine press. And then it's trying... Listen, I believe this is figurative of God taking the rest and judging them. But how is that judgment going to take place? I believe it's going to take place through the trumpets and the vials that we see in the book of Revelation. Now, here's the thing. That blood flowing up to the horse's bridles in space of 1,600 furlongs, you can, come, you can put that passage with an Old Testament prophecy. I believe it's in Joel where it talks about that happening in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Okay? And I've always wondered, is this literal? I was always told it's literal where the blood's flowing up to the horse's bridles. And I was told... I was always taught that happened in in the Valley of Megiddo. I went to the Megiddo Valley. Folks, it's physically impossible for blood to flow that deep in a valley that large. But did you know that the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is what that passage is about, is actually right outside Jerusalem. It's actually a very small valley. There, and I walked through that valley, and I'm trying to picture, and there, it's almost possible, I think. But even for that long, I think that's supposed to be like 200 miles or something. You know what? You know what I think this passage is. You know, a- after I walked through that valley, I, I walked that valley. I'm thinking, I was like, you know what? I do think that this is figurative, and basically, this it's symbolic, just showing the amount of blood that's going to flow on the earth when Christ returns. I heard somebody who's anti-God and anti-Bible uh, one time talking about God's body count in the Bible because God killed a lot of people in the Bible. And they were trying to make it look, make God look bad because of it. I personally thought it made him look awesome. But let me tell you something. If you're offended by the body count that God has in the Bible, wait till you see what's coming. It's going to get a lot bigger than that. I mean, y'all ain't seen nothing yet. But, you know, at the same time, it's all going to happen in one place and blood's going to flow. Let, let me just say it's my official position that that's not literally going to happen in that way. I do think that's symbolic. Because, first off, Revelation 14 is clearly all very symbolic. And it's just showing here in Revelation 14 that we've got a reaping for salvation and we also have a reaping for judgment. And so this vision here isn't about a single 24-hour period, but an overall summary of what God's going to do in the end. He's going to gather one group to himself and he's going to gather another group for judgment. And so now when you go to Revelation 15, it goes into greater detail on what happens to those who get thrown in the wine press of the wrath of God. And it's going to, and the very next thing it starts talking about are the seven vials. And in them are filled up the wrath of God. Y'all understand that? 
So the light, so he's saying in Revelation 14, it's a vision. We've got an angel with a sickle. He gathers up one group for salvation. Another casts in the wine press of God. Well, what does that look like? Is it an actual wine press? You know, or is, does it look like what we see in Revelation 15? Where I believe these vials that we're seeing are literal judgments that take place in the earth. And when that happens, when men are getting scorched with heat, you know what? They're being trodden under the wine press of the wrath of God. All of those things you're seeing, that is the world being trodden under the wine press of the wrath of God. So, uh, Jesus is giving a you know, figurative statement about what he will do at his return. That's what I believe is going on here. And so, he's calling it here, just briefly, a dividing of the sheep and the goats. Now, verse 33 says, And he will, shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now, I don't believe, again, I don't believe there's going to be an event in the future. And I, I used to think one of these days, right there in Jerusalem somewhere, the nations are all going to be gathered after he's like killed everybody, which doesn't make sense too, you know, at the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And then he's going to do a dividing of the sheep and goats. Uh, that's what I've always thought. But at the same time, there's some statements we're going to see that cause some great problems, if that's the case. And a lot of people do, they have the position that there is going to be a literal dividing of nations that happens at the end of the seven years. And I, I don't think that's the case. And let me show you why. So first off, um, what are some opinions about this passage? Because some people believe, it's because it says, when he talks about the sheep and the goats, it says nations. It doesn't say individuals. It says nations. So I can see why they get that point. But here's the big question then. So, how is he going to decide what nations go into the kingdom and which ones don't? Have you ever thought about that? Which nations are going to be saved and which ones are going to be lost? So, and if that's the case, what is the criteria for judging the nations? Now, you guys are going to love this. You want to know what a lot of people teach about this? That when Jesus Christ returns, when he comes in his glory at Armageddon, at the glorious appearing, which is not the rapture that they will save, He's going to divide the nations and they're going to be judged based on their treatment of Israel. That's what they say. I've heard many preachers teach that. Okay. Now, now in that, folks, we better take care of Israel. You know, you know, Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon, back when he was president, I know he had a lot of problems. I know he had a lot of problems, ladies and gentlemen, but you know what? He was right when it came to Israel. And whenever there was some conflict, I forgot which situation it was. They needed help over there in Israel. He went and he asked one of his men, find out what they need. I want you to go find out, you know, whatever they need financially, whatever it is they ask for, you find out what it is, then double it. And that's why we got so blessed, you know, with Watergate and, uh, you know, everything that great came out of the 70s. Folks, I, I, I've heard these things from pulpits. Uh, and, you know, don't, don't get me going on that. But that's what people are teaching God is going to judge nations based on their treatment of Israel. And you know, I don't know, but he, a, lot, a lot of problems with that. But again, said so if it is a judging of the nations, what's that criteria? You know, is he talking about nations like is the United States or China? But folks, if it's about physical nations, then what is a saved nation? What is a sheep nation? I mean, folks, look how wicked our country is. And do we really think, I mean, what country is better than ours? 
I mean, do we, so it's like, I, I'm thinking about this. I'm like, what nations would actually get to go into the kingdom? Because they all seem like they're pretty lost to me. So, uh, again, it's, it's one of these things that people, they don't have good answers. So let's keep reading. Verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So wait a minute. This, so God prepared a kingdom from the foundation of the world for, for nations that were good to Israel? That doesn't seem right. That, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of have a problem with that. For I was hungered and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger and ye took me in. Naked and ye clothed me. I was sick and ye visited me. I was in prison and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Now, again, one, so right here, it definitely appears that part of the criteria is the treatment of God's people. Now, we will argue with who God's people are. With, you know, we believe it's the saved. Others believe it's the Jews. I was talking to a preacher one time, and he was te- saying a bunch of things that were right. I mean, he was trashing dispensationalism. He was trashing Schofield. I mean, I'm, I'm like hearing everything he's saying, but this guy, I, he's one of the most pro-Israel guys I know. And so then I told him, I said, man, I said, I am right there with you. And I, I told him, I said, so why do you, so do you still think we should support physical Jews. And he said, yes, because Matthew, uh, the Olivet Discourse was for the Jews. And he said, he brought up the verse which says, I was, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, he said that was talking about Jews. And that's why we need to treat the Jews right. And then I said, but Jesus also said, who are my mother and sister and brethren, but he that doeth the will of my father. But then he's like, but he's like, yes, but Matthew, the Olivet Discourse is for the Jews. And so that was a separate thing. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know. It's like at that point, you know, what can you do? But, you know, notice, note, so again, notice the criteria here is the nation's treatment of Christ's brethren. Now, again, we would say that's talking about Christians while Zionists would say it was the Jews. But this also makes it appear that for a nation to go in the kingdom that they would get it by works. Y'all understand that? If the criteria for going into the kingdom is your treatment of God's people, isn't that a works salvation? Isn't that a works entering into the kingdom? Now, we're going to answer that here in just a little bit. But let's keep reading. Verse 41, Then shall he say unto them in the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So wait a minute. If this is a judging of the nations, then wouldn't that mean that if you treat God's people right, you get life eternal? Is it safe to say, all right, 
that life eternal and eternal life are the same thing? I know we're King James people, but I think if you say life eternal and eternal life, it's the same thing. Let's not try to make those two different things. So without a doubt... This, some because some will say, well, this is the these are the nations that will get to go into the millennial kingdom, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, because some obviously there's going to be some regular people there that we're going to rule over. But wait a minute, he called it life eternal. He said, come into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This sounds like salvation to me. So here here's the question again: Is this teaching a work salvation? Well, we know that can't be the case. You say, well, what's going on? Let me remind you again, this is a parable. Okay? This is a parable. This is not a specific event like a lot of people have, have been taught or, you know, or led to believe. So again, so what is this judging of the nations? This is important that we understand. What is the judging of the nations? And I believe when he's talking about the judging of the nations, Jesus is speaking in a figurative in not or a literal way, the same as he was during the two parables before this. He was speaking figuratively the whole chapter, and I believe he still is. He's giving parables. And a literal explanation would not have been understood at this time. That's the other thing you have to understand. If Jesus would have given a literal explanation of what was going on, they would not have understood it because certain things had not been revealed yet. Certain, some things had not changed yet. Because guess what? He hasn't gone to the cross yet. The new covenant hasn't come in yet. The veil of the temple hasn't been rent yet. You know, the, the death of the testator has not taken place yet. And understand, when all those things took place, everything that was promised was going to be fulfilled. But many of these things are going to be fulfilled in another way or in a better way. And Jesus was not speaking of those things in that way because they would not have understood them yet. It would have been too early to speak of them in that way. So he's speaking in parables. So what we have to do is we have to interpret this parable based on the things that were revealed later after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And when we do that, I believe we can figure out exactly what this is talking about. And if you think the separating the sheep and the goats is dividing up the saved from the lost, you are right. Okay? You are right. And you're not, you're not wrong about that, but let me show you how, uh, a little more on how we can prove that. So, um, so again, the literal explanation could not have been understood by the disciples. Certain things were not revealed yet, and, not, and they wouldn't be revealed until after the resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Also, the judging of the nations... That wasn't an important thing to the Jews during that time because the Old Testament prophets had pronounced all kinds of judgments on those nations that still needed to be fulfilled. These things, and you know what? These judgments that were pronounced on these nations that have not taken place, did you know they're still going to happen, but they're going to happen in a way that they did not understand? Okay. So for example, the book of Ezekiel has prophecies on all kinds of nations. Some have been fulfilled. Some have not been fulfilled. For example, we know about a judgment coming for Gog and Magog. Okay? But here's a question. What is Gog and Magog? Okay? Now, you How Lindsay followers think it's Russia, but you can't prove that from the Bible. You know, you know, let me just tell you something. 
The physical nation of Gog and Magog doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. Did you know a lot of the nations that God pronounced judgment on are gone? They're not around anymore? Did you know, where, where are the Edomites? Where are the Ishmaelites? Watch them Muslims. No, those nations, those nations are gone. How about Babylon? Babylon also is gone. Now, everyone will agree with what I'll say about Babylon. There is a spiritual Babylon, isn't there? And let me tell you something. There is a spiritual, there's spiritual Edomites. There's spiritual Ishmaelites. They're called Jews today. There are, there, and you know what? I believe there's a spiritual Gog and Magog. Now, what is that? I'm not going to take time to prove this, but I just I believe that Gog and Magog is basically are just heathens, is what it is. That's what heathens, Gentile heathens, is pretty much what it is. And during the millennial kingdom, even during the millennial kingdom, while we're all going to kind of be one people, there are going to be some heathens. There are going to be some unbelievers, and they're going to and those heathen are going to get judged. And you know what the Bible calls them? Gog and Magog. The Gog and Magog prophecies will be fulfilled through the judging of the heathen that are left at the end of the millennial reign. That's what I believe about that. Don't have time to prove all that. But Acts 3.18, notice what this says. It says, But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of His prophets that Christ should suffer, He has so fulfilled. Repent there and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and He shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive unto the time of the restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. So when Jesus Christ comes back, there's going to be a time of refreshing and restitution of all things. Everything that needs to be fulfilled from the Old Testament, and there are many things, are going to be fulfilled but again, it's not about physical nations. Okay, the the pro or the the pre-trib crowd, the pro-Jew crowd, they want to make it all about physical nations, even though these nations are gone. And you know, it's so funny too, because not only do no Jews know what tribe they're a part of, and and we use that against them on the 144,000 thing. I hear people do it all the time. They leave comments on my YouTube channel all the time when I'm talking about you know spiritual Israel and all that stuff, and they always come at me with this gotcha question that I actually do have an answer for, but I've just quit responding to these people because they're not capable of understanding the answer. But if anybody ever comes up to you again, you think you're a spiritual Jew? Well, what tribe are you a part of? Well, I can actually tell you that. Anybody want to guess what tribe? No. No. Ephraim. Okay. Okay, now some of you might get that, but you'll have to go back and look at some, watch some of my previous sermons. Yeah, I'm from the tribe of Ephraim. Oh, no, no, you're not. You know, it, it's, it's, it's eternal, right? Okay, listen, if it's eternal just because you're a Jew, where's the tribe of Dan in the book of Revelation? Where are they? What, ha- what happened to them? They're gone, aren't they? So I, I, don't, I don't see the tribe of Ephraim anywhere. I actually do. I see the tribe of Ephraim in the multitude that can't be numbered in Revelation 7 because Ephraim is a representation of the Gentiles. And I've proved that before. I don't have time to do it now. But if anybody ever asks you what tribe you're from, just tell them Ephraim. And, and if the, the, I, just listen, just ask them this too. Go back to Jacob's prophecy with Manasseh and Ephraim and say, when did Ephraim ever outdo Manasseh? Manasseh was the largest tribe. Ephraim was one of the smaller tribes. Ephraim never outdid Manasseh. It, it never happened physically. 
but spiritually it did because they were the part of that northern kingdom that became intermixed with everybody and they were representative of the Gentiles. And that's, that is something that definitely can be proved through the scriptures. But again, we don't, it's not about physical nations anymore, ladies and gentlemen. It's spiritual. And so understand, one of these days, there is going to be a dividing of the nations. But it's not going to be about America and Canada and China and USA or and all, all these different things. It's not going to be about that. You know what it's going to be? It's going to be about Israel, the Israel of God. It's going to be about the Edomites. It's going to be about Gog and Magog. It's going to be about all these nations that were talked about back then. But the way you know what nation you're a part of, it's not by whose flag you fly. It's not by whose land you live in. It's about who you are spiritually. That's what it's about. Now, physically, okay, again, this is something that had not been revealed yet during that time. But we all understand this now in Acts 17, verse 26. And Jesus couldn't have said this to disciples. They wouldn't have understood this because it hadn't happened yet. But it has happened now. It had happened in Acts chapter 17. And what does it say in Acts 17, 26? And he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not very far from us. So understand, when it comes to physically speaking, guess what? We're all of one blood. All of us. And you know what we all are without Christ? Gog and Magog. Heathens. Without Christ, physically, we're all heathens and we're all doomed. Without Christ, every one of us are heathens without Christ. So understand this judging of the nations that's going to take place someday. It's not about physical nations. If it's about physical nations, everyone's Gog and Magog. Everyone's heathen. But it's about spiritual nations. And we do have the spirit of all these different groups still out there. And so that's what's going to take place during that time. He's going to divide the nations. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to gather Israel. And you know what? And all Israel shall be saved during that time. But guess what? That's about the saved. That's about the believers. When Christ returns, all Israel is going to be saved, spiritually speaking. And we are of Israel. We're going to be saved. But the rest are going to be thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God. That's what's going to happen to the goats. And so many of the nations that we see the prophecies about don't even exist anymore, but they do spiritually. And so, and think about this too. Oh, no, they got to still, Gog and Magog still has to exist. Well, not, no, physically it doesn't exist. Well, Babylon is God. No, Babylon was completely wiped out. It was completely destroyed. It's gone. But spiritually, it's still around. And you know what? Israel, as a physical nation, did not exist for almost 1,900 years. And as far as I'm concerned, it still doesn't exist. It's a UN creation, ladies and gentlemen. God, had, God was not behind that. God is not the one raising up the Antichrist. It's the beast system with its names of blasphemy. And it was blasphemous when they took the name of Israel, when they started that state over there. So understand, you know, that, yeah, they, you know, they called it Israel, I believe, and as a blasphemous thing in defiance against God. So as far as I'm concerned, that physical nation still doesn't exist. It's a spiritual nation. And that's what we have now. They didn't have that in Matthew 25 yet, 
But as they went into the book of Acts, things changed. And it's not about physical nations because physically we're all of one blood. Because nobody's going to heaven based on their bloodline. God's not judging, going to judge people based on bloodlines. It's based on the things of the Spirit. That's what it's about. And we who are saved, we are of Israel. Galatians 6.14 says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace on them. What rule? The rule where circumcision isn't what matters. The, the, the rule where Jesus Christ is what matters. He's saying peace on them and upon the Israel of God. And ladies and gentlemen, that's talking about us. Okay, There was an Israel of the world back then during that time, but the Israel of God, that is what we are a part of today. And so again, who are Christ's brethren? It's those that do the will of his father. Exactly what Jesus said when everybody's trying to make a big deal because his mother and brother were there and he just like, who cares? Jesus, these people are of your lineage. They're obviously special chosen people. Who cares? Listen, you say, man, you know, I think he should have been nicer to his mom and his brothers. Listen, I believe Jesus loved his mom and I believe Jesus loved his brothers. But at the same time too, I think he, he was afraid of sending a message that could have advanced this attitude that we should be lifting up a race of people. Now, sadly, a lot of Baptists never learned from this passage right here and are still trying to be, oh, these are the brethren of Christ. No, they're not. Okay? They're the children of those who killed Christ. If they're just hanging on to their Judaism. So, don't, don't fall for that stuff. So, let me ask, so, again, so are the sheep talking about saved people? Yes. It is talking about saved people Without a doubt, in verse 46, when it says, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, the goats, but the righteous into life eternal. Do, do not come King James me like a Ruckmanite and say, Nope, there's a difference between you know, life eternal and eternal life. No, there isn't. It's the same thing. Okay, It's, it's the same thing. So again, how is this not teaching work salvation? But... And let me point this out to you. Because notice, for one, that the righteous didn't even know they did anything. Think about that. This is the polar opposite that we see from the false prophet that Jesus warned about, who said, many will come and say, Lord, Lord, have you not cast out devils? You know, in thy name cast out devils, in thy name done many wonderful works. What does Jesus say to the people who come professing their good works? Depart from me, I never knew you. But we got another people who come along. When did we do anything? You know what that sounds like? That sounds like the people who are trusting in what Jesus did to get them to heaven. Those who, uh, those who are saved are those who have repented of their dead works and have put faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the people that are saved. But Jesus, and so notice how you know, that opposite reaction that we see. And notice how the works Jesus points out. It's an example of literally the smallest thing that one can do. He's, he's like, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. He's like, I was sick, you visited me. He, it's, it's all these tiny little things that none of us would even think about doing. What's he doing here? Is Jesus giving a list? All right, those of you list-minded people that are always looking for a checklist for something, you got to... Make sure you actually give somebody a drink. That's a believer. 
By all means, do all that. But you know what? I don't think I'm going out on a limb here when I say that if you are saved, it would be nearly impossible. And I'm not trying to teach perseverance of the saints right here, folks. But listen, if you're saved, it would be nearly impossible for you to not do some good thing at some point in your life for one of the brethren. Do you all understand that? You would have to make an effort to not do something good. Every one of you ladies today who made food for the fellowship, who made cookies, you're qualified. <laughs> but, but listen, when you stand before God, don't say, Lord, I made cookies for Liberty Baptist Church. <laughs> don't, you know, no, the righteous aren't even going to do that. The, the righteous aren't going to do But you know what? Jesus notices every one of those things. You know why? Because, again, Jesus is not describing how to be saved here. But this is how God sees us who are saved. When you're saved, we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. He doesn't see the sin. He can't see those things anymore. But yet, he's, but he can see any good what we do. And so if you literally do any good at all, when you stand before Christ, that's all he's going to see. That's it. He's not giving qualifications for getting in. This is just what the king is going to say to the sheep when he sees them. He's going to point out the, the good that they did. Because, and, but the thing is, you're not going to do that. You're not going to bring those things up. So I don't believe this is contradicting anything. And again, he's speaking in a parable. He's speaking in a figurative way here. And I believe he's saying this too because of the fact that this, what he's saying about them doing good to my brethren is the opposite of what Israel was going to do to his brethren. Because what did Israel end up doing to his brethren? They persecuted them. What did Ishmael end up doing to Isaac? He persecuted Isaac, didn't he? And Paul talked about that in Galatians 4. The main persecutors of the Christians were the Jews during, during that time. And so I, I also believe that if you never, ever do anything good for the brethren, but do evil, then it's probably because you're not saved. Oh, well, that sounds awful works-based. Well, you know what? In Philippians 1.27, it says, Only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. You know, when there's somebody out there and all they want to do is attack the church, all they want, they want to do is persecute the church, you know what? It's probably, listen, I know we're IFB people and everything here. We've got a lot of new IFB in us and we have a tendency to go around. They're not saved. This person's not saved. I don't think that person's saved. We're always judging everybody's salvation, right? But let me tell you, when somebody's actually persecuting God's people, that's a good sign they're not saved. Okay. I, you know, the fact that you made me, you know, you got mad at me. We had a disagreement. You said something I disagree with and I've declared you a railer. And you, doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved. We might say that stuff sometimes. But folks, when somebody's persecuting, did you know, even the Apostle Paul, what was he known for? Persecuting the church. Saul of Tarsus, persecuting the church. Did he keep doing that after he got saved? No. He became a friend of the church. After he got saved. When somebody's persecuting the church, I think that's an evident token of perdition. I think that's a good sign that they are lost. And so, understand that I do, when we, when saved people, when sheep stand before Christ, they've been cleansed, 
He can't see their sin. He's only going to see the good. And if you have, if you've done the tiniest little things, Jesus is going to see you as somebody who is good to him. Somebody that was good to his brethren. And you know what you're going to go? You're going to go into life eternal. And guess what? That's eternal life. And, and you're going to go into the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. So the truth is, imputed righteousness is the only thing that makes the difference. Understand that too, folks. Imputed righteousness. Okay? We're credited with righteousness. So Jesus is describing some good people here. Jesus is describing good works right here. Exactly. Because we're getting credited. The, the good that we do is because of Jesus Christ. We give Him glory for it. Again, the righteous. He said the righteous are saying, when did we do this? You know why? Because righteous people don't profess their own works. But Jesus Christ only sees the works of those, who, uh, the good works of those who are faith, and He doesn't see the bad. And those who are of faith have imputed righteousness. So you know what? Again, when I stand before Christ as a sheep, He's going to see some good things. But do I get to brag about that? Absolutely not. You know what we're going to sing when we stand before him? We're going to sing, Thou art worthy. That's what we're going to sing. We're not going to, we're not going to talk about our accomplishments, but Jesus will. And so Israel's failure was a failure in achieving righteousness through the works of the law. Our success will not be through the works of the law, but through the work of Jesus Christ that was done in our behalf. And so remember, too, all the parables before this were about Israel losing the kingdom. And I believe Jesus is pointing this out because he knew the nation of Israel not only was not saved, not only were they goats, but he also understood they were going to be the main persecutors of God's people. Now, how did he know that? Because they were persecuting him. Jesus saw the way they were treating him. And what did he tell the disciples? This is how they treated me. They're going to treat you the same way. Jesus understood that. And so he knew at the end, Israel's going to be the goats. And you know, in our twisted, messed up world we lived in, goat's a good thing today. I think that's of the devil right there. You know, it's just like, every, you know, every, you're, you're the goat. I remember the first time somebody told me I was the goat. I got insulted at first. And I was like, oh, and so it was like, no, it means greatest of all time. You know what? Don't call me a goat. My, my head's in the Bible too much. <laughs> so I, I don't like that. I, I'd rather be a sheep than a goat. But either way, hopefully that makes sense. So the separating the sheep and goats, it's a parable explaining how when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to gather the sheep to himself and they're going to go into eternal life. And he's going to gather the goats to be cast in the winepress of the wrath of God. And they are going to be judged and they are going to suffer. Those who are allowed to go into the kingdom are these people who did some good things that they didn't even know they did. But it turns out, it's just because we have imputed righteousness. We've put our faith and trust in Christ. And he's, we're going to go into eternal life. Those who have not, they're going to be destroyed. And so I believe that's the proper way to look at that parable. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray this message was a help and a blessing to everyone. We thank you for uh, imputed righteousness. Without it, Lord, we would have no hope uh, whatsoever. And so we thank you for uh, coming and paying the penalty for our sins. Help us to be thorough and diligent in spreading that message to others. In your name we pray. Amen.